Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 3rd, 2012. Uh, uh, All right, this will be an interesting edition of Fighting for the Faith. Yes, oh boy. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> All right, it might be a long edition. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Pause, stop for a second, think, reflect, open up God's Word, see if that's what it says in context. The idea is this, is that we know from Scripture itself that all of Scripture, all of all of the Word of God that is the Word of God written and revealed for us there in, in the Bible, all of that is God's Word, and it is inspired. It is God-breathed. So how would you know where the Holy Spirit is working? Well, answer is pretty simple. Um, if, if you think of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I think there's a lot of confusion that goes on you know, regarding that, but the answer is simple. Where God's word is rightly preached and Christ and him crucified for our sins is proclaimed and sinners are called to repentance of their sins and in trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross for their sins that's where the holy spirit's working all god's all of all of scripture is god breathed so what happens is is that there's there's a lot of confusion in the church today because people somehow think that the work of the holy spirit is to somehow continue revealing things to you. No, that's actually not what God's word reveals, okay? There is no passage of scripture that says, and God's going to continue to reveal his secret will from on high to you. No, 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 no. If you want to know what God's will is, open up the Bible and read it. If you want to hear God's word, if you want a revelation from God, then find a church where the pastor is rightly and boldly and correctly proclaiming and exegeting God's word. Why? All scripture is God-breathed. So the idea is this, is that people have this mistaken idea that somehow the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give you a liver shiver, to put you into a trance, to to continue ongoing revelation to and that's that the work of the holy spirit is intimately tied in fact inextricably 
tied to the preaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel. Um, You know that God the Holy Spirit is working and is active and living and powerfully at work in a congregation where God's word is being rightly preached, rightly taught, rightly proclaimed. Which leads to then the question then is that, well, if the pastor isn't rightly preaching God's word, is the Holy Spirit present? So many people think that we can tell that the Holy Spirit is at work, well, because, well, they have a praise band and people raise their hands. You see, because the Holy Spirit lives just out of arm's reach of the uh, of the tallest person in the uh, in the auditorium. And so you got to reach up there to feel him. You can tell the Holy Spirit is working is at work in the church because people have goosebumps. You you can tell the Holy Spirit is at work because people are barking like dogs. You can tell the Holy Spirit is at work because people are speaking in unintelligible uh, languages that nobody can understand. That, by the way, that's not what the biblical doctrine of tongues is. Um, you no, know, those are not necessarily, in fact, some of them not at all, the signs that God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. You show me a congregation where the pastor opens the Word of God and rightly preaches it. You show me a congregation where the pastor opens up Scripture, and rather than ripping things out of context engages a passage, unpacks it, and points you to Jesus Christ, confronts you with your sin, and presents as the solution a crucified, beaten, scourged, bloody, dead Savior who also rose again bodily on the third third day for your justification. Um, Well, then I can say, yeah, God the Holy Spirit is at work there. Because people's people are being confronted. They're being confronted with their sin and unbelief. And Jesus Christ is placarded. And they're hearing God's word correctly. The oracles of God are being treated as if they're the important thing. Keep in mind, I mean, we're all ambassadors, right? right? Christians are ambassadors. You can think of as individual congregations. A good metaphor would be that they, those individual congregations are embassies, Right. No ambassador gets to set policy. No ambassador gets to set the agenda. No ambassador gets to set the message. They are to pass along the message from the king. Because remember, this is not, we're, we're not part of a republic in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom. Christ currently sitting on the throne, reigning and ruling from on high. So as, if your church is truly an embassy of the kingdom of God, and your pastor is an ambassador of the kingdom of God. He's not setting policy. He's not deviating from it. He's not speaking behind the back of the king. Instead, he is faithfully proclaiming the good news he's been given to proclaim. The message doesn't change. You could tell God the Holy Spirit is at work when people hear God's word rightly preached. That's how you know. And so, I mean, so many, uh, the, the, we, we come to uh, church, you know, keep in mind, we're wrestling with our sinful flesh, and our sinful flesh doesn't think this way. This is, this is not intuitive, okay? But God the Holy Spirit is at work when his word is rightly preached. The idea is, is that you can't disconnect 
the work of the Holy Spirit from the preaching of the Word. And that's the way God the Holy Spirit intended it, all Scripture, God breathed. Which is why I think we can say safely that that the Apostle Paul tells young Pastor Timothy, preach the Word. Your ideas, your philosophy and false doctrines, your theological speculations, none of that has the power to save anybody. Not one person. Because your ideas, your thoughts, your personal pet theologies, um, none of that is God-breathed. God's Word is not your personal pet doctrines and theologies. They are not. Your personal pet doctrines and theologies are actually a form of idolatry. And if you were to preach and proclaim them from a pulpit or in a small group setting within the church, you would be guilty of blaspheming the name of God. Because that's what it means to take God's name in vain. Something to keep in mind. So, All right, looking at today's agenda here for fighting for the faith. Boy, got to tell you, uh, there's a little bit of movement on the story regarding Andy Stanley. And um, Rick Warren has uh, officially called for Albert Mueller to apologize for the megachurch headline, and uh, so we're going to take we got we got that story. Apparently, Andy Stanley has sort of, kind of responded to the controversy, which I think is uh, rather interesting. I've got a Joel Osteen update where Joel Osteen is addressing a question pertaining to whether or not the word faith heresy or the prosperity gospel that he preaches is a heresy uh, in light of uh, the new da- uh, Douthwaite book. Uh, regarding American heretics. Anyway, so we're we're going to look at his response to that. I'm going to then let, um, uh, well, the uh, the White Horse Inn blog. Um, the the headline there is uh, the the uh, Osteen God wants to supersize your joy. Uh, this was written by the Reverend Doctor Brian Lee, who is the pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Washington D.C. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to, re- you know, that, that was a the reposted on the White Horse Inn blog, which I think is worth passing along. Um, I, so you got the Andy Stanley thing. Oh, yeah, we've got <laughs> we've got a new. Um, well, let's put it this way. I have found a um, a new source uh, that's associated with the Patricia King gang. I, I found a ministry uh, by a woman who works for, well, she's got her own video Christian ministry entitled Swift Fire Ministries. And, uh, and oh, man, we're going to be uh, listening in to um, this, uh, this gal. Her name is Charnel Wolverton, and uh, she's talking about frequency for healing. So we're, we, this is a, I, I, in fact, because this is Swift Fire Ministries, you know, even though she's, technically affiliated with the Patricia King gang. I had to come up with our own um, intro music for when we do segment segments for Charnel and uh, <laughs> got to tell you, wow, um, this will be interesting. And then in hour number two today, I've got a, I've got a very good sermon for you. I'm going to be reviewing, um, <clears throat> you know, even you, Phil pointed out this out. I'm going to be reviewing a sermon by Phil Johnson in uh in that uh, takes a look at penal substitution in light of the story of Barabbas and it's it's worth passing along and I was looking for 
um, uh, a sermon that addressed it, uh, addressed it, that addressed penal substitution, uh, especially after our segment that we did yesterday, and uh, and found this uh, sermon by uh, Phil Johnson to be just the ticket. The name of it, by the way, is Christ Crucified Instead of Barabbas, and Phil Johnson does a fantastic job of unpacking uh, the biblical text that he's preaching from, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 15 through 26. And I, I just consider this to be a stellar example of exegetical preaching using the historical grammatical method. I mean, and where he rightly handles law and gospel, it's just well done and 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 purposely points us in the text how penal substitution is there. So um, it's uh, it's <laughs> looking forward to passing that along to you in hour number two. So we got a lot of a lot of ground to cover. It's it's extremely warm here in the. Central Indiana. In fact, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the uh, thermometer here in studio. It, it, we I started at uh, 84 degrees when the uh, program began, and when I locked the studio up, uh, you know, to do my program in order to uh, prevent sound from coming in, uh, it, it it turns into a little oven in here because I got you know what four computers running, and uh, so it's it's already up to 87. It's gonna it. <laughs> It's going to be a warm edition of Fighting for the Faith. So my, my fuzzy bunny slippers are not on. They're they right there under the desk. So just want to let you all know that. But if you uh, if you are in an air-conditioned room or in uh, one of the parts of the world where it's not too hot, you, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your, uh, your listener experience. If you don't own a pair, head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. We have several pairs that available for purchase right there on the website. You, know, you just click on it and purchase them and uh, fulfillment through Amazon.com. So anyway... With that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper, which means that I'm going to have to use our brand new uh, segment uh, music for when we do a Swift Fire update. Here we go. So that's our new update music for when we do a swift fire update. I get the feeling that we might be uh, revisiting this video <clears throat> ministry um, many times in the future. I, I just I have that feeling. So anyway, the the name of the again the, the name of the gal is Charnel Wolverton, and uh, you can find her videos by the way at the Extreme Prophetic website, and uh, you just uh, do a search there for Swift Fire. Um, with Charnel, and you will find videos of by Charnel. And so here's um, 
Charnel Wolverton of Swiftfire discussing frequency for healing. See if many of this makes any biblical sense to you. I'm Charnel Wolverton. Welcome to Swiftfire. Today we are going to talk about frequency. Now, frequency by definition, let me just read it to you so we're not getting crazy thinking think that we're talking new age stuff here. Frequency. Yeah, because, you know, the Bible talks about frequency like nowhere. Um, <laughs> so reading a definition from Merriam-Webster isn't going to help us think that this is actually a biblical teaching, Charnel. It's just a word, a scientific word. And the definition of frequency is the measurable weight rate of an electrical energy that is constant between any two points. So it's the amount of, of frequency that something goes back and forth between two points. Now, yeah, okay. Every person has a frequency. Really? Wow. I wonder what my frequency is. Um, we give off an energy or a frequency of rotation within our body. Uh huh. I give off a frequency of rotation. Maybe that's why I'm round-shaped, because, you know, I'm giving off a frequency of rotation, you know. Um, a normal human adult on a healthy day, their frequency ranges between 62 to 68% in their body. Yeah. And 80 to 90% in their brain. Okay. Um, now, what happens is when the frequency gets lower or starts to, um, to drop... So when the frequency becomes infrequent, got it. Then we open ourselves up to uh, to more different illnesses that um, can, can come in. Um, okay. Um, we're more susceptible to illness and sickness. For example, um, when you drop down to like 57%, then you're looking at flu symptoms. Um, okay. Um, um, even a little bit above that, you're talking about cold, like 60, 62, a little bit below that. You're talking about cold symptoms, 57 flu symptoms, um, candida, 55 megahertz, um, Epstein-Barr and um, chronic fatigue and things like that. The more you drop, the more susceptible that you are to those kind of things even more. Can so do you have a biblical solution for this frequency drop problem that apparently we all suffer from? Cancer begins at 42. Uh -huh. So you can see it gets worse and worse, and the things that you can get more susceptible to, chronic things, more things that are more difficult to get rid of, the lower that we go. Death actually begins at 25. It doesn't start at zero. It starts the death process at 25 megahertz. Oh, boy. Wow, we better... Do something about that. So if I wore something to keep me charged up above 25 megahertz, then I wouldn't die? So the point is, scientifically, you will want to try and keep your frequency up as high as possible. Right. And what does this have to do with the Bible again? This is... Yeah. And heaven, as far as heaven goes, heaven is a very, very high frequency. Heaven... <laughs> you've, measured, you've measured the frequency of heaven. Really? How did you do that? Everything is buzzing. Everything's alive. There's an energy that is going on all the time. And um, all the spiritual things, being able to walk through walls and see with x-ray vision and all that stuff. Is because so Superman has a high frequency because he can, you know, he has x-ray vision. His frequency is at a heightened rate and that we are um, able to do things that we haven't done before. We're able to hear things, see things, feel things. Um, it's just a whole different state. Right. And where is this frequency doctrine taught in the Bible again there, Charnel? As far as heaven goes. 
And so the higher that we can get, not only the better we are going to feel. So hook yourself up to an electrical socket to get your frequency up, and then you can experience, well, heaven. The more energy that we'll have and the more um, less ability we'll be able to get and catch diseases, um, but we'll also be have, have a better understanding of what's... Do you have a license to practice medicine? I'm just curious. ...what's going on in the atmosphere spiritually. Um, and, and just be able to open up more to the spirit realms. Um, now, how can we keep frequency up? What keeps our frequency up? Yeah, I'm dying to find this out. Um, worship. Um, okay, so when I worship, my frequency goes up. Certain types of music. Anything that's in, like a really anointed music. And when I say that... So anointed music. So like the anointed shofar CD. Um, um, that would help get my frequency up. Please hear me. I'm not necessarily meaning, quote, Christian music on the radio. There's a lot of really anointed, high-frequency music made by Christians or people who are um, ministering and um, worshiping out of their spirit that is on the regular radio. We don't have to be all boxy and religious and say, if it's not on this radio station, then that's not going to give you frequency. Can you give me an example of a secular song that is really spiritual? Which artist am I looking for here? Like Lady Gaga? Um, who, who am I looking for? There's a lot of very, very anointed, amazing people who are not on the Christian radio stations, and they have amazing frequency. Um, now, You're right, yeah. Whew. There's also very negative music as well. So we, yeah, I've yeah, I'm sure there is. You got to be careful about what we're listening to because frequency can come down, and we're more susceptible to to get to feeling bad and feeling. Um, and now, do you have some kind of a thing I can hook myself up to so that I can measure my frequency? So. You know, I mean, because I mean, if we're going to do this scientifically, I mean, because you've alluded to science here and, you know, there's all this anointed spiritual secular music out there. I, I think it would be good for us to scientifically, you know, find some way of hooking myself up to some electrodes of some kind where we can measure my frequency and, and then, you know, throw out some different you know songs from, you know, different artists to see, you know, whether or not that's anointed or not. I mean, yeah, we we might be surprised by the results because obviously if if I'm listening to a song and it's secular, and my frequency goes up, well, that, that's the indicator that that might be an anointed song. You know, to catch things that we don't want to catch. Um, but also, prayer will bring up frequency. Ah, okay. Um, being around really positive people will... Right, so, okay. ...bring up frequency. Yeah. Being around negative people, like Debbie Downer, you got to hang on Debbie Downer, you get Yeah, you don't want to hang out with Debbie Downer, because then your frequency might drop down, and it's if you're all, it's already low, because, like, you know, if it's in the 40s, because, you know, you're susceptible to the flu, and Debbie Downer shows up, it might drop below 25, and then death might occur. On the phone with someone who's been talking negative, and, you know giving your ear like a good workout yeah. and negativity, then that is going to actually affect your inside body and the way that we you function on a regular physical level. Um, now, I hate to say this. I don't want to touch any sacred cows and mess with your St. Arbucks, but coffee, um, just walking into Starbucks, not even necessarily drinking the coffee, but just walking in and smelling it or just taking... Uh, a cup of coffee or a can of coffee and holding it will instantly drop your frequency. Oh, no. 
So you don't want to have a negative spiritual uh, experience. So you, you got to drop the coffee. You know, don't even smell it um, right away. Um, so the idea of waking up and smelling the coffee. Well, we all know now the spiritual dangers involved in that. Your frequency will go down. From like 62 to in the 50s. No way. I mean, you're, you're practically at flu level at this point. 50s. Um, and I just found that that was really interesting. Tea, on the other hand, doesn't do that. I don't know why, but tea doesn't have the same effect. I don't know if it's the caffeine or what. People are always asking me that. I don't know the answer. I just know that coffee, for some reason, is bad. Can I just ask a, you know, the logical question here? Um, sure, no. Um, what qualifies you to be doing a video ministry on the internet? Uh, what 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 is about this is considered to be biblical teaching? Um, wh which seminary did you go to again? Um, what you know? Which systematic theology do you think really nails it? I'm I'm curious. Um, because you know I. Just when I think of the term ministry, when in associated with Christian ministry, which XP Media somehow claims to be some kind of a Christian ministry website, the last thing that comes to my mind is the you know learning how to avoid uh, the negative impact on my frequency, you know, as 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 a result of negative music, Debbie Downer, or Saint Arbucks. Um, so I you know just curious again, what does any of this have to do with the Bible? Could it possibly be that you are like at this point like way off topic and maybe need to be reeled back in and, and pointed back to God's word so that you can really, really dig into that and what it really says in context rather than often these tangential topics that you're on. So anyway, there's our first um uh, well segment from Swift Fire Ministries. Like I said, I do detect that uh, there's a good chance that we might be uh hearing more from Charnel in the future. So anyway, if you'd like to email regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We, well, we'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go.
Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Warning, people claiming to be doing ministry while checking your frequency, eh, well, they're not doing anything that's Christian. I, nothing even has to do with the Bible. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says uh, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio course if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 now before we get into our next segment just want to remind you all a week from today today is uh, thursday may 3rd so a week from today on thursday may 10th um at 6 p.m that's when the door is open uh, I well, I, I was starting to speak at six thirty, but you want to get there when the doors open. I will be speaking um, at a church in the uh, north part of the uh, Indianapolis area. In fact, uh, the uh, coordinates here are: I'll be speaking at Harbor Shores Church. The address is eight zero one one East two hundred and sixteenth Street in Cicero, Indiana, and I'm going to be lecturing on well. I won't give you the details. Let me just tell you the name of the, the lecture. My lecture is entitled, Resistance is Futile. You will be assimilated into the community. That's the name of my lecture. And so you can just wonder what I'm going to be talking about. The The, the overarching topic is uh, the state of the church in uh, 2012, and that's my topic. So we're going to be uh, unpacking some very important stuff and I guarantee you it'll be um, eye-opening and somewhat controversial. So um, it's free to attend, uh, you know, you, and so if you want to be there, again, uh, to get directions and more information, go to worldviewbootcamp.org, worldviewbootcamp.org. That's all one word squished together, you know, Internet style. So just want to let you all know that. And with that, we're going to move along. Been doing a lot of Osteen updates lately. Sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw don't have a flaw. My shiny teeth and me, my shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my my falsetto is a little off. Just like Christmas tree. You love to walk the mile just to see me smile. Shiny teeth and me. Yes, they're all so perfect. So white and pearly. Brush gargle rinse a couple breath mints. My shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth so awesome. Just like Shiny teeth and me. All right, yeah, that's our Joel Osteen update music. Man, he's been in the news a lot lately. Anyway, the folks over there at the Christian Post uh, scored an interview with uh, Joel Osteen where uh, he was asked a question. You know, with the, the, the new, was it Ross Dothwaite? He's uh, written a, a book about you know American heretics and, uh, and kind of takes on the uh, Joel Osteen prosperity gospel type of thing. So the, 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 the gal pr- conducting the interview there at the Christian Post 
asked him about it, and uh, his answer was, well, interesting. Um, Here's Joel Osteen. You know, I don't consider myself a, I don't really know what the prosperity gospel is. The way I def- he, he doesn't know what the prosperity gospel is. Really? You also don't know what Mormonism teaches either. Weird. Fine, it is. I believe God wants you to prosper in your health, uh-huh. in your family, yeah. in your relationships, in your business, in your career. So I do, if that's the prosperity gospel, I do believe that. I don't- yeah, that sounds <laughs> a lot like the prosperity gospel. And it's a heresy. Don't, I don't believe we're supposed to go through life defeated. Yeah, I don't believe. Yeah, that weird. Um, why aren't you saying things like God's word clearly reveals that da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Really, we're not supposed to go through life defeated. Can you, can you preach this gospel, if it is, even is a gospel? Could you preach it to somebody, you know, you know, to the martyrs of the Christian faith, you know, both— in antiquity and in present times. In fact, I've read reports that uh, Christ- persecution that Christians are suffering around the world is at an all-time high. Never before in the history of Christ- of the world has Christianity suffered so much. You know, in organized persecution, especially the hands of Islam. You know, so you know, do you think that those guys are just not getting it? Do you think the folks that are living in those you know nations where Muslims are in control and they can't even worship publicly and you know and you know they you know could face death as a result of their proclamation of Christ and crucified do you think that the problem is that they're just not embracing you know with their words uh, the prosperity you know that God wants us to be victors not victims that kind of thing do you think that's a problem they just don't have enough faith and not having enough money to pay our bills or send our kids to college so you know, when I hear some of that, I think that's not who I am. He doesn't He doesn't know me or what I teach. Yeah, but I do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're saying it just right here, yeah. Because, uh, you know, he's saying God doesn't, you know, believe that, you know, there's no demand. Right? I, don't, I don't think I'd put it like that, but I always talks about, I talk about God rewards obedience. Yeah. Wow. That's all law. You really think you're obedient. When you follow his ways, the Bible says that his blessings will chase you down and overtake you. And my life. So that's it. See, the reason why Joel Osteen is so prosperous and so successful, I mean, is because he's so obedient. Mm. And see, the reason why you're so poor and why you're struggling to pay your bills is because, well, you're not obedient like Joel is. Life is, a, is an example of that. I've seen God's goodness. And so <laughs> that's what he even said. My life is an example of that. Got to back this up so you can hear it in context. I mean, this is just <laughs> wow. But I always talks about I talk about God rewards obedience. When you follow his ways, the Bible says that his blessings will chase you down and overtake you. And my life is, a, is an example of that. I've seen God's goodness. And so, yeah, because you're so obedient. I don't consider it the prosperity gospel. I don't. I don't think he has me characterized right. Uh, you know, sometimes people take a clip here, a clip there. But if you know, I, I talk many times about trials, suffering. You know, being your best when your prayers aren't being answered. So. Okay. So there you go. Um, Joel Osteen. So, <laughs> oh wow. And uh, by way of uh, kind of countering this, uh, the Reverend Brian Lee of Christ Reformed Church in Washington, D.C. wrote a recent piece entitled, Osteen Says God Wants to Supersize Your Joy. So what's wrong with that? I'll let um, 
uh, Dr. Brian Lee have the the Reverend Dr. Brian Lee have the last word here. He writes, and this is on the uh, White Horse Inn blog on Sunday night, April twenty ninth, twenty twelve. 41,000 fans packed National Stadium in Washington, D.C. to hear a message of hope, inspiration, and encouragement from Joel Osteen. Most paid about 20 bucks, including fees for the privileges. Osteen sold out the stadium, a feat that the Nationals rarely accomplish. But did he have to sell out to do so? Osteen is the latest embodiment of the American religion revivalism. For centuries now, preachers have known how to fill stadiums or circus tents, or turn their churches into a circus, and send people home with hope in their heart and a skip in their step. Osteen promises you will leave a transformed person, at least until his tour comes around again next year, when you can be transformed again, again. Osteen's message is a positive one for a difficult time. Every one of us has seeds of greatness inside, potential that has not yet been released, buried treasure waiting to be discovered. If you were a car, you would be fully loaded and totally equipped with pinstripes, he says, gesturing to his suit. Before God created you, he planned great things for you. As for <laughs> as you stretch your faith, God is going to show up and show out in tremendous ways. If you don't step into your destiny and release your gift, then this world will not be as bright as it should be. That's a pretty positive message. What could be wrong with that? Well, the biggest problem with Osteen's message about God is that it really is a message about me. God is a potential, a force, a co-pilot waiting to be tapped and deployed. I may have a net below me, but I am the one that has to take the first steps on the wire. Taking steps of faith is imperative for, to fulfilling your destiny. When I make a move, God will make a move. When I stretch my faith, God will release more of his favor. When I think bigger, God will act bigger. God is as big as I think him to be. Yes, this is the American religion. A program, a plan, five simple steps to help me be all that I can be. This is the religion of the bootstraps, where God helps those who help themselves. By the way, an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that is a quote from the Bible, but it's not. And that's the second problem. Osteen's message is not biblical. His promise that his audience will be taught the Bible from a preacher who has admitted that teaching the Bible isn't his strength is fulfilled with a smattering of verses. These snippets are at best torn out of their context and at worst fabricated. There's this, there's this stretch, quote, God is saying to you what he said to Lot, hurry up and get there so I can show you my favor in a greater way, <clears throat> end quote. In Genesis 19.22, the angel does, does tell Lot, get there quickly for I can do nothing until you arrive there. God waiting on Lot to step out in faith so that he can bless him? Not exactly. It is God telling Lot to flee to Zoar, a city of safety, so that he can rain down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Osteen bolsters his bootstrap religion by quoting Jesus, quote, Roll away the stone and I'll raise Lazarus, end quote. Uh, this, Osteen says, is a principle, quote, God expects us to do what we can and he will do what we can't. If you will just if you will do the natural, God will do the supernatural. End quote. Well, one problem. Jesus does command them to roll away the stone. But no such quid pro quo is found in Holy Writ. 
This foundational principle is one of Osteen's own making. It is not primarily the details of Osteen's biblical sunbeams that are problematic. It's the overall message. What's missing is any sense of human sin. Osteen leads his crowd in a mantra at the opening of his performance where he says, This is my Bible. Tonight I will be taught the Word of God. I can do what it says I can do. Again, bootstraps. What does the Bible say that we can do for ourselves? Our best works, according to the Bible, are like filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah teaches, Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like sheep that have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, and includes himself in all of this as the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1, 15. The big problem is that we don't want what's good for us, and when we do, Paul says, the good that I want to do, I do not do, Romans seven nineteen. Ring true? Well, it does for me. That's why the stadium will be full next year. Self-esteem doesn't help me. It just leaves me with uh, with more me digging deeper within. So how about Jesus? Surely he's more upbeat than Paul or the prophets. Well, he does offer this simple recipe to happiness. Quote, sell all you possess, give it away to the poor, and then follow me. You've done that yet? Uh, well, yes, he does say that our faith makes us well, but he is the healer uh, healer our faith looks to. He also ha- tells the paralytic to take up his bed and walk, but only after he's healed him. So what we want is the excitement and the encouragement and the affirmation of the stadium. God is waiting for you to act. What we need is the truth and compassion of Jesus. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. After the adrenaline boost, I hope some of those 41,000 people find their way through the desert to some place where they can get a drink of water. Earlier uh, Sunday, 45 worshipers, about 0.1% of Osteen's crowd, gathered at Christ Reformed Church in Logan Circle and other churches in the city to hear a message of sin and salvation. The good news of a God who loves those who are his sworn enemies. They responded to God's word with prayer, song, and confession, and they received the benediction of a God who pardons sin full and free. There was hope and inspiration too, but of an entirely different sort, and admittance was free. Yeah, I think that op-ed piece uh, clearly demonstrates the difference between the wide highway that leads to hell and the narrow path that leads to eternal life. The biblical message, the, the message that Christians have been called to proclaim, is radically different and the message that Joel Osteen preaches. He might fill stadiums. The problem is is that the people in that stadium eventually will find themselves in hell if they believe the message that they're being taught. Moving along. Okay, from the Christian Post, the headline reads, Pastor Andy Stanley responds to questions over homosexuality stance. Now, I'm going to say this. He has not really responded, and his answer, well, his response is, well, lacking substance and definition. Uh, This is by Stoyan Zymov of the Christian Post. He writes, Pastor Andy Stanley recently left some Christians questioning his stance on homosexuality after preaching a message on grace and truth that included an account of a gay couple last month. He told the Christian Post he may issue a statement in the near future. Yeah, he needs to. And it needs to be clear, unambiguous, and concise. In the meantime, he pointed people to his eight-part message series on what it means to be a Christian, which concludes this Sunday. 
Quote, we are requesting that everyone watch the entire series. Christian, it concludes this Sunday. It's eight parts. That's a lot of content to wade through. But I figure that's better than a soundbite or an interview. Stanley, who leads North Point Community Church in Alfreda, Georgia, said in an email to the Christian Post. Actually, I got to take issue with that. No, it's not. That's that's vague. That's ambiguous. That's obfuscating uh, your responsibility to answer a direct question clearly and concisely. The question is, why did you, in your sermon illustration, say that you confronted a homosexual couple and basically said that they couldn't serve because they were in, a, you know, one of the partners was in an adult was well was committing adultery because he wasn't officially divorced. That creates the impression that somehow you're going squishy regarding what the Bible teaches regarding the sin of homosexuality. Um, so turning around and saying, well, I, I don't want to issue a soundbite, so what I'm going to do is ask you to wade through eight sermons of about an hour apiece to find the answer. No, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely wrong. Andy Stanley needs to issue a concise and clear statement. Does he believe homosexuality is a sin, yes or no, and why? Plain and simple. He should not require people to to spend their time listening to eight different sermons in order to try to figure out the answer to this question. That's ridiculous. It's that in fact it, that's just flat out criminal. In fact, that's the tactics of somebody who's trying to blur clear distinctions rather than make those distinctions clear and understandable. It's real simple. All he needs to do is issue a statement answering the question. It doesn't need to be more than a couple of paragraphs long. It could even be a few sentences. Plain and simple. The fact that he's not doing that or hasn't done that is problematic at best. The question needs to be answered, and it needs to be answered clearly, and people should not have to wade through eight sermons in order to try to figure out the answer to the question. This is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. This, Listen, folks, God's word is not debatable, plain and simple. And what I mean by that is, is that where God has clearly spoken, it's not our job to go, I'm not sure if he means that. Maybe he means something completely different. I, Well, maybe we find a way to get around that, okay? I don't find a lot of people out there going, you know, listen, you know, that whole idea of adultery, I mean... Come on, this is the 21st century. We've been through the sexual revolution. This idea, Pastor, that you expect me to be faithful to one woman the rest of my life? Come on! No, I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get some on the side, and you know, and, and, and I'm sure God is fine with that. I mean, I've, I mean, seriously, the Bible's been debunked anyway. I mean, wh- when are we gonna s- just come to grips with the fact that the Bible teaches all kinds of crazy things we don't believe anymore? I mean, the Bible teaches you can't eat shellfish. Well, I had. I had shellfish the other night. You know, and you don't you didn't have a hissy fit about that. Why are you having a hissy fit about me committing adultery? It doesn't work that way. That's not a right handling of God's word, nor is it an attempt to even understand what God's word is te- you know, teaches. The gospel that we are called to proclaim as Christians, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 24 to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Now, listen, I'm not God. 
I don't get to pick what's a sin and what's not a sin. God does. And so my job as a pastor, well, as a teacher in the Christian church, I'm not, I'm currently not a pastor, but my job as a teacher in the Christian church is to rightly handle God's word and to call sinners to repentance. And I don't know what a sin is unless God has revealed what a sin is. Okay. And so there's a list of 10 commandments. Those pretty much give us the whole outline of what sin is. And there's a whole bunch of other commandments as well in the scriptures that make it clear that, you know, when it says thou shalt not commit adultery, a subheading to that would include homosexuality. Okay. Plain and simple. And the fact that Andy Stanley preached a, a message that blurred that the the obvious question that came up i mean you heard the soundbite here at uh, fighting for the faith i played it in you know, it, in a whole segment of it so you can hear it in context it's really clear the question is would he have allowed those two practicing homosexuals to serve at that church had the divorce been final the way he tells the story sounds like it so we got a problem here this is not an answer Andy Stanley needs to answer the question directly. And it doesn't matter if it's going to result in in in, in people less people showing up at his church. Truth is to be proclaimed and we as Christians are to put out a united front as we call all sinners including ourselves to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. On another note by the way, you know, kind of similar similar to the topic, you know, Rick Warren has decided to weigh in. He took a shot at Al Mohler on, um, on Twitter the other day. This is also from the Christian Post. Lillian Kwan wrote this. Warren, Rick Warren asked Albert Mohler to apologize for megachurch headline. A prominent evangelical's recent blog headline is the megachurch, the new liberalism, has irked Pastor Rick Warren, who is calling for an apology for the sensational title, Warren, founder of Saddleback Church, sent a tweet to Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, on Tuesday saying, quote, A title questioning thousands of churches' orthodoxy due to, a, uh, due to size is, unlike, is unchristian-like. You need to apologize to pastors, Al. In a blog post Tuesday, Albert Moeller described the emergence and growth of the megachurch, which draws at least 2,000 attendants and acknowledged that there have that they have helped to anchor conservative Christianity in the United States. At the same time, he noted that some megachurches have ad- adapted to the ever-changing American culture, abandoning certain biblical truths. Mueller went on to express concerns over a recent message preached by Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Community Church in Alfreda, Georgia. As he described the account of a gay couple, Stanley mentioned the sin of adultery. One partner was still married to his wife, but did not affirm the sinfulness of homosexuality. The inescapable uh, impression left by the account was that the sin of concern was adultery, but not homosexuality, Moeller wrote, adding that he hopes Stanley will clarify his view on the issue. Now, so Rick Warren is calling for um, Albert Moeller to apologize. And I'll just say it publicly. Um, Albert Mueller, please do not apologize. If you need to back, if you need more evidence to back up your claims in in that uh, article, just point uh, Rick Warren to the archives of Fighting for the Faith, because I've demonstrated over the four years that I've been doing this program that the mega churches are the new liberalism, and I do and I demonstrate that from more than one sermon, but from the 
constant litany of sermons that are preached in many of the prominent seeker-driven megachurches, demonstrating that they do not rightly handle God's word. They capitulate to the culture. They twist God's word, preach a different gospel. And uh, and I completely agree that the megachurches are the new liberalism. And I don't say that in question marks. I say that definitively as a certitude based upon evidence that is documented, recorded, and archived here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, Rick Warren would be an example of somebody that I would point to and say, yep, Saddleback is part of the new liberalism. By the way, um, Rick Warren's wife, Kay, just this past weekend preached the sermon at Crystal Cathedral. Do you think that's in keeping with somebody you know who's conservative? who is holding the line on what the Bible teaches regarding complementarianism or cutting corners, changing the truth and capitulating to the culture. So anyway, you know, I just, I point all that out. So uh, Albert Mueller, please do not apologize. Please do not. I think you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going wrong in the mega churches. And even though you only cited one example, just point uh, Rick Warren to the archives of my program and he'll have thousands of other examples that um, will back up the claim that you've made there. So, you know, I just want to say that. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, a good sermon by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunners yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better. 
and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunners. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon for you this hour. Details coming up. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Pastor Phil Johnson presiding. He's one of the shepherds there. He's also, he also works for John MacArthur and is anchoring there at, uh, Pyromaniacs blog. The name of the sermon, by the way, is Christ Crucified Instead of Barabbas. Now, after yesterday's debacle with uh, part two that we did with uh, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church in his better atonement stuff that he did over at uh, Baylor University, where he's debunked supposedly the uh, doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, which he did not do, I, I was looking for a good sermon that addressed the topic and was 
pleased when I was going through my archive to find uh, Phil Johnson's sermon, Does the Trick. Now, as you listen to the sermon, a couple of things I want to do here. I want to kind of deconstruct this in a good way and show you what's going right in the sermon. Number one, you're going to notice that the text is driving the sermon, not some relevant topic that Phil Johnson came up with after doing a sociological study of the so-called spiritual seekers in and around Sun Valley. He's got a biblical text he's got to preach. And so this is a great example of what it's called the historical grammatical method. He doesn't just start in on the text. He gives you some context to it historically so you can orient yourself in the historical narrative itself, and which is actually important. So he does some time doing some backstory, filling it in. He reads the text begins to preach it, starts to show, hint at what's going on in the text when he points out that Barabbas, hang on a second, let me kill this music, that Barabbas is the perfect example of penal substitution. I mean, mean, (laughs) it's brilliantly done. And here's the other thing. He doesn't engage in any kind of emotional manipulation. He's letting the text do the work. And so there's no applause lines or anything like that. In fact, the other thing I I like about this is that you can tell he's not trying to fit it, you know, the proper distinction of law and gospel into a formula. You know, one of the one of my criticisms of some of the sermons that I hear from uh, guys within uh, the Missouri Synod, I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran, is that it's as if they got, you know, a, a sca- they got a scale, you know, those one of those pan scales where you got two pans that are weighing, you know, they're, they're sitting with a, you know, a lever or a fulcrum in the middle and, you know, and, and they sit evenly and then so they, what they try to do is they'll measure out law, you know, they'll put it in one pan, okay? And then we'll go over to the the gospel pan and measure out gospel. And so the goal is to get it to weigh evenly. <laughs> you don't have to do that. <laughs> you just don't. Properly distinguish law and gospel, and even if the gospel is is not evenly distributed with the law, that that doesn't necessarily always have to be the case. And my Lutheran friends, my Lutheran brethren, if you don't believe me, read Luther's sermons. <laughs> he doesn't try to formulaically make sure that both pans weigh the same. Neither does Phil Johnson here. He properly distinguishes law and gospel, and he clearly proclaims the gospel at the end. And he does so in a way that's sober. He does so in a way that is right in line with the text, and he doesn't try to emotionally manipulate. He lets the word of God do all the heavy lifting. His job is to make people understand what this text says and he does it very well. So without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson and his sermon entitled Christ Crucified Instead of Barabbas. Here we go. This being the start of Passion Week, I decided to look with you this morning at one of the key texts in the crucifixion narratives. You know, every year, just in the few days before Good Friday, my thoughts always get immersed in the story of the crucifixion, and I find myself sort of itching to preach a sermon on Judas' betrayal or the trials and humiliations of Christ or Peter's denial or some other facet of the crucifixion story, but, you know, Good Friday is always followed by Easter, 
And on Easter Sunday, the only suitable theme is resurrection. And so this year I made a special effort to think ahead. And I want you this morning to look with me at one of the key events in Jesus' trial before Pilate. And so turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at verses 15 through 26, about 12 verses there. This is the account of how Jesus changed places with Barabbas. Here is a vivid and living illustration of the principle of penal substitutionary atonement. Christ literally died in Barabbas' place on a cross that was meant for Barabbas, taking the punishment Barabbas deserved while Barabbas himself went free. Barabbas, that's a name most of us know. There have been novels written about him and fictionalized movies filmed to explore, you know, imaginary scenarios about who he may have been, what may have become of him after Jesus was crucified. Usually in those stories, he becomes a Christian. I hope that really happened. I would love to meet Barabbas someday in heaven, but the story we have from Scripture simply shows that Christ physically took his place. Whether Barabbas came to faith or not, I do not know, but I I look forward to finding out when we get to heaven. The truth is, right now, we know next to nothing about Barabbas. Scripture gives us very few details about him other than his name and the list of crimes he was charged with. He's like Melchizedek in the sense that he comes on the pages of Scripture with no pedigree and no introduction, and then he disappears without any trace, and he's never mentioned again. And yet, like Melchizedek, Barabbas is an important biblical character. He plays a significant supporting role in the New Testament crucifixion narratives. He is mentioned by name in all four of the Gospels, and that alone makes him significant. You know, the birth of Christ is mentioned in only two of the four Gospels. Of all the miracles Jesus did, only the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four Gospels. Nemus appears three times in the Gospel of John. He's a major character as well. He's in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the Gospel of John. But he makes no appearance in any of the other Gospels. And if you compare any harmony of the gospel, one of the things you'll notice is that surprisingly few incidents in the life of Jesus are mentioned in all four gospel accounts. The trial before Pontius Pilate is one of them. Okay, going to pause here for a second. The biblical mandate for pastors is to study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles or cuts the word of truth. Already, we're three minutes into this. Does it sound to you like Phil Johnson has done his homework to make sure that he can properly preach this text? Oh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> he, this wasn't a sermon that he put together three minutes before he walked out the door to go to church that Sunday. He spent time studying to make sure he's got this text, and he's sharing that so that we can understand the magnitude and the weight and the importance of what it is that he's going to preach so we can really properly see this in a, in, a, in a bigger scope. It's not just the text. Let's put the text in its bigger context within the Gospels and, and, and the New Testament stories themselves. How does this all fit? He, he's giving us this background that orients us in the text. 
what do the soldiers on the ground talk about? They talk about situational awareness, right? You know, that's where, you know, you, you, you're completely aware of your environment and, you know, all that kind of – that's important stuff. What Phil Johnson do, is doing here is giving us situational awareness of, the, of where we are in this historical narrative and how it fits into the bigger picture. Great thing to do when you're teaching through a biblical text. And all four Gospels expressly mention Barabbas, and that is significant, and it proves that Barabbas is significant. And furthermore, just the relative amount of space given to this account of Barabbas underscores the fact that the Gospel writers themselves considered him a significant character in the crucifixion narrative. No one would dispute, for example, that, say, Judas Iscariot is the betrayer, is a, is a major New Testament character, and yet, do a search in your concordance, you'll discover there are only 32 verses in the entire New Testament that mention Judas by name, even though Judas was present for all of Christ's earthly ministry. By contrast, Barabbas encountered Christ only tangentially, don't know if they ever even saw each other, and only on this one occasion is he appear, and yet 38 verses in the New Testament are devoted to describing what happened in the Barabbas incident. So Barabbas is a significant person in the gospel account chiefly because he is the living embodiment of a helpless, hopeless sinner who is spared from condemnation even given an undeserved place of privilege just because Christ took his place on the cross. And therefore, Barabbas is a flesh and blood symbol of every redeemed sinner. And in a true and literal sense, he could say, Christ died for my sins before any of us. And he was no doubt the very first person to whom it might have occurred to make a confession like that. During those dark hours while the crucifixion drama was playing out, while the disciples were confused and scattered, while even those closest to Jesus wondered at the meaning of it all, Barabbas was already fully aware in a unique and particular sense that Jesus was dying in his place. And I'm not suggesting that he knew this with the full conviction of saving faith, but in a rudimentary sense... He must have had some crude understanding of the principle that lies at the heart of the atonement because in that literal physical sense, Christ had taken his place on the cross, borne the condemnation that was due Barabbas, and made it possible for Barabbas to go free. This is a brilliant point, and this preaches. Oh, oh, oh does this preach? All without any work or any merit on Barabbas's part, he did not deserve the favor he was shown. And that's what the gospel is all about. The cross is the heart of the gospel message. We preach Christ crucified. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In short, Christ took our place. 
He bore the full weight of the punishment we deserved. He died in our stead so that we could be freed from the penalty of the power and the bondage of sin. And Barabbas illustrates that truth in a dramatic and powerful way. Christ literally changed places with him at the behest of a weak-willed Roman ruler and the bloodthirsty multitude. And here's some context. Matthew 27 Are you turned there? Let's just breeze through this chapter. The chapter begins with the morning scene after the night of Jesus' betrayal. When Jesus was first arrested in Gethsemane, it was late night, but, you know, not early morning yet. And uh, it was a mob scene. Judas led the way, of course, with the Jewish officials who ordered Jesus' arrest in tow. And these were representatives of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish rulers... They were the ruling body that presided primarily over the temple grounds and over the religious affairs of Israel. But those Jewish officials brought with them a large detachment of Roman troops. Matthew 26, 47, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him, Matthew says, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the Gospel of John is where we learn that this great crowd, John 18.3 says, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were a band of soldiers and some officers. Now, they had to be Roman soldiers because the Jews weren't permitted to raise their own militia. But these soldiers, John says, had been procured by the Sanhedrin, by these Jewish rulers, just to arrest Jesus, probably sort of picked up from the Praetorian Guard whose headquarters were adjacent to the temple. And so these temple rulers brought these Roman soldiers and they seized Jesus, bound him, and took him to the house of the high priest. Now, the high priest that year, Scripture tells us, technically was Caiaphas. But his father-in-law, Annas, was the real power behind the priesthood. The priesthood in those days ran pretty much like the mafia. And Annas was the godfather, and Caiaphas was like Sonny, I guess. (laughs) And Jesus' first trial began there at their house, probably in the yard that, that was between the houses of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas examines Jesus first, and then Caiaphas... I want to point something out, that little mafia example. That's an example of contextualization. He's trying to help us understand, and he's alluding to something that we all understand culturally so that we can understand something from back then. And it was a a perfectly legitimate use of contextualization, and it was employed to help us understand the biblical text. It was not employed in such a way that it overpowers... Uh, the preaching itself, which is worth noting. We continue. And then the whole body of the Sanhedrin are brought to examine him or to pass judgment on him. And so this is a three-phase trial, and it lasts through the night. And phase three, as Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, this large ruling body, this is phase three, and that's what's mentioned at the top of our chapter. It ends at daybreak with the chief priests and the elders, that is the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, going into deliberations to decide their verdict and to discuss what to do with Jesus. Matthew 27, 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
Mark 15, verse 1, says it like this. As soon as it was morning, so beginning to dawn, you remember the rooster had just crowed, and signifying to Peter uh, the truth of Jesus' prophecy about his betrayal. So dawn is beginning to break. Mark 15, 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin, and it's a large body, 70 men. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, they had to turn Jesus over to Pilate because although the Sanhedrin did have sort of a limited authority to try and condemn someone if the charge was blasphemy or some other crime against the Jewish authorities, some kind of desecration of the temple grounds or whatever. They had authority to try and condemn someone guilty of those crimes, but technically they needed Roman authorization before they actually executed someone. Now, apparently, there are instances in Scripture that suggest that if they caught someone in a wanton act of blasphemy, they sometimes took up stones and executed the blasphemer on the spot, you know, and, and, and Romans, Roman officials apparently didn't make an issue of that. They probably just looked the other way when that happened because it was never easy to tangle with the Sanhedrin if they got angry. You see examples of this in John eight fifty nine, where the Pharisees tried to stone Jesus. They took up stones to stone him on the spot, and he walked through their midst and escaped that. And they actually did stone Stephen on the spot without apparently any Roman approval in Acts seven fifty eight. But in this case, they are charging Jesus with past crimes. They've held this trial under cover of night. And so they want at least the facade of official justice on their proceedings, and so they take him to Pilate. And they expect Pilate to practically rubber stamp their verdict and, you know, kill Jesus, put him to death. Now, Pilate actually lived in Caesarea, which was three days' journey to the north on the Mediterranean coast, but he happened on that day to be in Jerusalem because it was the Passover holiday, and he came down to honor this Jewish celebration. And so they took Jesus to where he was in Jerusalem, probably in the Praetorian Guard area, right next to the temple, somewhere there. And the express purpose of the Sanhedrin in doing this was, according to Matthew 27, 1, to put Jesus to death. They had already passed judgment on him. They had given the verdict. They simply wanted Pilate to carry it out. And so, verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now, just scanning through this chapter, while that's going on, verses 3 through 10 give us the account of Judas's suicide. And then at the end of that little vignette, we're back at Pilate's headquarters... And John's gospel fills in some of the details for us. And you can tell from John's description that Pilate didn't respond the way these Pharisees and scribes and, and Jewish rulers hoped they would, that he would, that he didn't just rubber stamp their decision. There is some cold hostility between Pilate and the Sanhedrin, which accords with what we know from history. Listen to John 18, 28. I'll just read it to you. And I'll read through verse 31. This is John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
And now notice, they don't answer that question. They don't tell him what the charge is. The charge is blasphemy. That's what they've condemned him for. But they answered Pilate, verse 30 of John 18, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You know, it's kind of a snide answer. Take our word for it. You need to execute this guy. And if you ask too many questions, we're going to make trouble for you. That's the sense of it. And so Pilate said to them, verse 31, take him by yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, they wanted him dead. And so then verse 33 of John 18 says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. He walks away from this crowd of Jews. Now, if they want to get in his face, they're going to have to defile themselves. And he called Jesus in and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that is exactly where Matthew 27, 11 takes up. You're in Matthew 27. Look at verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. And thus begins a whole new series of hearings, a whole second trial, this time under Roman authorities, and this likewise becomes a three-phase trial. There were three phases to the Jewish trial. Now there are going to be three phases to the Roman trial. And it's, it's very quick what happens. Pilate questions Jesus, and it's clear that Pilate has no desire to carry out the wishes of the Sanhedrin. He is not willing to execute Jesus just because they demand it. He's not their puppet. And so at the end of this first phase of the Roman trial, John 18.38 says, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And Luke 23, verses 5 through 7, tells us that when Pilate pronounced this first not guilty verdict, the priests and the Pharisees then became urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. Now, notice, their charge against Jesus is changing. It's not that he's a blasphemer. Now the problem is he's a seditionist. He's uh, stirring up the people against Rome. That's the implication. They knew that would ring with Pilate. But when Pilate heard this, Luke says, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, see, Galilee was outside Pilate's jurisdiction. That was part of Herod's area. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So Herod had come for the Passover as well. And Pilate thinks, okay, I can wash my hands of this political problem. I'll just send him to Herod. He's Herod's guy anyway. And so phase two of the Roman trial begins. Herod questions Jesus. And Herod, who's just a nasty guy, mocks Jesus for a while. He arrays him in a phony robe, and then he sends him right back to Pilate. And so Jesus is now a political hot potato. You know, you can imagine Herod sends it back to Pilate and says, yeah, he may be a Galilean, but they're charging him with this crime in Judea, so he's your problem. And he sends him back to Pilate, and now we come to our passage. Pilate has, meanwhile, figured out a way he thinks he can rid himself of this whole mess. There was a custom, a, a sort of an official goodwill gesture on behalf of the Roman procurator where he would release a political prisoner during Passover. And Pilate figures this might give him a way to disperse this lynch mob without having to order the death of a man whom Pilate has already pronounced not guilty. And so here's our passage, Matthew 27, 
verses 15 through 26. I'll read the whole passage. It's about 12 verses. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I had have suffered much because of him in, today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, that he delivered him up to be crucified. Now, practically every flavor of human depravity is represented in that account. Specifically, there are three categories of sinners who appear in major roles here. There's Barabbas, the notorious sinner, whose wickedness is so obvious and so well-defined that it is impossible to conceal. He's a bad guy on the face of it, and you know it. Then there's the angry mob, which represents the religious sinner. Their wickedness is hidden under a mask of religiosity and self-righteousness. And finally, there's Pilate. He's the respectable sinner whose wickedness is papered over with a veneer of worldly nobility. And what I want to do this morning is look at these characters one at a time. First is the notorious sinner, represented by Barabbas. If you want to take notes, just write that down, the notorious sinner. The text I have been reading to you is from the English Standard Version. Verse 16 says of Barabbas that he was a notorious prisoner. And notorious is how also the New American Standard Version translates it. But the Greek word simply means remarkable or noteworthy. And in fact, it can be used to signify a negative reputation like infamy, notoriety, disrepute. It can mean that. But the Greek expression is not inherently negative like the English word notorious. The King James Version calls Barabbas a notable prisoner. And that's what the word literally means. Now, Barabbas certainly was notorious, and that is probably the main sense this term means to convey. Barabbas was infamous. He was scandalous. He was renowned because he was a thoroughly reprehensible man. His villainy was both abominable and well-known. And in fact, we will talk about his crimes in a minute, but his, the nature of his crimes were such that he would have been hated by the Romans and the Jews equally. 
But this term notable, the notable prisoner, might, might also signify that perhaps he came from an influential family of high status, notable in the sense that he was originally a high-born and aristocratic person. His name, Barabbas, is easy to translate if you know even a minimal amount of Hebrew or Aramaic. That prefix, bar, means son. Peter, for example, was Simon bar Jonah, which means his father's name was Jonah. He was Simon, son of Jonah. And a Jewish boy entering manhood becomes bar mitzvah, or a son of the law. So that's what the bar part means. Abba, you know, is the familiar name for father. Romans 8.15, we cry, Abba, father. And so the name Barabbas literally means son of the father. And it might be a kind of descriptive nickname for a a mischievous kid who, you know, people always say of him, he's just like his father. People say that about my kids a lot, when they're, especially when they're behaving in evil ways, just like their father. And that may be what Barabbas signifies, but more likely in that culture, it was a title of respect for someone who had an imminent father, especially if his father was a rabbi. This was a common surname in the rabbinical class, son of the father, meaning the great rabbi's son. And that could have been Barabbas' background. In any case, he had clearly become notorious because of his crimes. He fit into the worst category of criminals, condemned to die in the most shameful manner, not even by a Jewish execution, something honorable or fairly honorable like stoning, but on the cross at the hands of the Romans, which was a, like the most ignominious possible way to die. Whatever he may once have been, Barabbas was now utterly without honor and without hope. And Scripture says... He was guilty of three crimes. John 18.40 says, now Barabbas was a robber. So he was a thief and a a brigand. It's a a special word for robber that literally means plunderer, and it evokes the notion of a, a marauding outlaw, a highwayman who finances other crimes through ill gotten gain. It's the same word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10.30, where Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is the worst kind of outlaw. And by the way, it's the same word that is used in Matthew 27.44, which speaks of the robbers who were crucified with Christ. Remember, he was crucified between two thieves. Those men, those two men, were undoubtedly confederates of Barabbas. He seems to have been the leader and the most famous one because he's the only one who's named for us, but all of them are described as robbers. Now, this was not petty thievery. These weren't pickpockets. These were marauding highwaymen who, you know, beat people up and took what they had and used the gain they got to finance other crimes. And this explains why these men were condemned to die through crucifixion. According to Mark 15, verse 7, this was actually a band of violent rebels. They were anti-Roman seditionists. They were most likely members of an extremist Jewish political party known as the Zealots. They were rank outlaws who had incurred their condemnation 
because they fomented riots and insurrection against the rule of Rome. And Rome, and particularly Pilate, had no patience with people like them, and they were typically condemned to a speedy execution. So in all likelihood, the trial of Barabbas had taken place just on the preceding day. They didn't put people in prison and give them time to appeal the death penalty. If you were found guilty of a crime like that, you were executed at sunrise. Now, part of the notoriety of Barabbas lay in the fact that he had also committed a wanton act of murder or even possibly multiple murders in one of these violent uprisings. They started these riots and then in the midst of that committed acts of murder. Mark 15 verse 7 introduces him this way, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And Luke 23:19 confirms this, saying that Barabbas had been arrested and charged for insurrection, for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So they started this riot right there in Jerusalem, and in the midst of the turmoil, they committed acts of murder. And so he was a bloody, brutal criminal, already judged guilty, already condemned to die that very morning. Perhaps he had once been noble. He clearly was not so now. Now, as I said, Pilate in particular, was well known for his absolute hatred of insurrectionists. Luke 13 verse 1 mentions the fact that Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. In other words, he, Pilate, desecrated the Jewish temple, because that's the only place Galileans would be making sacrifices. He went into the temple in his pursuit of revenge against some men from Galilee... And the victims of this atrocity were most likely insurrectionists themselves, possibly followers of a famous rebel known as Judas of Galilee. No relation to Judas Iscariot, but there was this man named Judas of Galilee. He is mentioned in Acts 5, verse 37. And he's also mentioned by Josephus, the secular historian who wrote about Judas of Galilee. Josephus says this, He led his countrymen into rebellion, declaring it an evil should they suffer tribute to be paid to the Romans. In other words, he led this rebellion by saying it's an evil against God to pay taxes to the Romans. That was a huge controversy. You see it reflected even in the gospel accounts. And this guy said, no, it's a sin to pay tribute to the Romans, and he led this violent uprising in Galilee. And in fact, Josephus says that this Judas of Galilee was co-founder of the party of the Zealots, along with Zadok the Pharisee. And so Galilee, this same reason where Jesus ministered for much of his earthly ministry, Galilee actually harbored lots of zealots and other anti-Roman insurgents. They could go there and get away from Pilate's jurisdiction. And Pilate had apparently tracked some of these Galilean zealots to the temple, and he killed them right there at the altar so that their blood, in effect, was mingled with the sacrifices they were in the process of offering. So Pilate's hatred of the cult of the zealots was fierce and well-known, so fierce he was willing to desecrate the temple, which, by the way, jeopardized Pilate's career because it provoked even more widespread rebellion throughout Israel, and word got back to Caesar, and Caesar wasn't very happy with Pilate about it. And so the fact that 
Pilate's treatment of insurrectionists was so brutal probably also explains why when the Sanhedrin bring Jesus to Pilate, it is insurrection rather than blasphemy becomes the charge they bring against him. Luke 23, 2, they began to accuse saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's an absolute lie. Jesus did not forbid tribute to Caesar. He said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But then they add this, telling Pilate, and he says, he himself, Christ, is a king. But when Pilate sees Jesus in person and and questions him, Pilate, who knows insurrectionists pretty well, he knows immediately that this is a ruse. Jesus is no zealot. The Sanhedrin themselves clearly posed a more imminent threat to Roman rule than Jesus did. Pilate, of all people, knew a zealot when he saw one, and Jesus was no insurrectionist. Pilate, who's a shrewd politician, now is in a dilemma. Given his reputation for being harsh, together with his former desecration of the temple, and because of other diplomatic faux pas that he had committed against the Jews. As I said, his position as Roman procurator was already in jeopardy. So he cannot afford to provoke the Sanhedrin, even though he knows they're trying to execute Jesus on trumped-up charges. He's not guilty of what they say. Even though Pilate senses that the Sanhedrin are trying to bully him into something he's not inclined to do, Pilate is not in a position to rebuff them, especially with this growing mob of agitated people under his window screaming for Jesus' blood. He cannot afford another riot, nor does he want to do something that's going to exacerbate his his reputation as a ruthless tyrant, and so he's in a dilemma. No matter what he does, he's going to be in trouble, so he hatches a plan. In the words of John MacArthur, this was a last-ditch effort to escape the dilemma the Sanhedrin had created for him. It's a conflict between conscience and career. It's a choice between satisfying the Jews he hated or the Caesar he feared. I love the way he says that. Now, again, notice something here. He's giving us the history, and that's a key part of the historical grammatical method. Now the narrative begins to take on new life in details that you may have never seen all of a sudden are popping and you're going oh that's why that right so the hist- history and grammar are key now it was customary scripture says for the roman governor to release a hebrew prisoner from roman custody every year at passover as a kind of gesture of goodwill and also a symbol of rome's respect for the jewish religion Now, most likely, these released prisoners would have been normally petty criminals or nonviolent political agitators, political prisoners. Apparently, the governor would select a handful of candidates for early release, and he'd put a list up and permit the citizenry to select the prisoner of their choice to be released. Never would a man like Pontius Pilate willingly release a violent criminal like Barabbas. He wouldn't have done it. In all likelihood, Barabbas's crimes were so heinous and his reputation was so bad that Pilate chose him because he was certain in his mind that the people would never sanction Barabbas's release. So that's the choice he gave them, either Barabbas or Jesus. Jesus and Barabbas 
as the only two candidates for that year's amnesty, Matthew 27, 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? By the way, I ought to mention that uh, several of the very earliest Greek manuscripts actually treat Barabbas as a surname, and they give Jesus as this man's first name. Jesus, of course, is the Greek equivalent of Joshua, and it was a common name. And so if that was indeed Barabbas's given name, his first name, this would make sense of the expression in verse 17. Who do you want me to release for you, Jesus who is called Barabbas or the Jesus who is called Christ? And if that is indeed a correct reading of the original text, that would mean that the choices Pilate set before this Jewish mob were both called Jesus, son of the Father, which is an interesting possibility. One of them, holy, harmless, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, the other is as thoroughly wicked and as militantly malicious as anyone you could possibly imagine. And common sense would suggest that Pilate's stratagem was a pretty good one. After all, on the one hand, the people had every reason to fear and even hate a man like Barabbas. And on the other hand, just a few days earlier, practically the whole city had turned out in unison to welcome Jesus with cries of Hosanna. Of course, they would choose Jesus to be released, right? Wrong. And that brings us to a second category of sinners who play a major role in this drama. This is the religious sinner represented by the mob. Category number two, the religious sinner. Now understand, this mob consists of the highest order of priests and their followers. These are the religious elite of Israel. These are religious leaders and a group of their disciples whose identity, all of them, is defined by their religion. These are not rank pagans who pride themselves in being bloodthirsty. These are the same common people who, at the height of Jesus' ministry, had followed him in great throngs. In the words of Mark 12, 37, the common people heard him gladly. He had healed their sick. He had raised their dead. He had cast out demons in their midst. He had fed them both literally and spiritually. He had never done them any wrong. All he had done was speak truth to them. But at the instigation of the Sanhedrin, these people turned against Jesus in a way that is absolutely shocking in its irrationality. And yet, you think about it, this whole incident perfectly illustrates how the whole world is drawn to that which is corrupt and evil, while fallen human nature inevitably expresses its true character in a violent hatred of everything that is pure and holy. We see it in our culture. You see it reflected in society every day. Secular culture is intolerant of whatever is genuinely pure and holy, while our culture cultivates an insatiable craving for every kind of evil, and it's getting worse all the time. In the words of S. Lewis Johnson, this is the madness of the multitude's choice. It's mad. It's irrational. It makes no sense that they would do this and yet look around us. Our culture does it all the time. Same thing. The hostility of this crowd against Jesus 
is stunning. And even more so when we remember that only just a few days ago, it was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There is no good reason for the malice these people spew at Christ, but it reveals how easily suggestible a multitude can be, especially a multitude of people who are fallen in their very nature. And all this venom expresses their true fallenness, and it was stirred up and aggravated deliberately by the Sanhedrin. What you have represented by this mob are actually two varieties of religious sinners. Some of them are rank hypocrites, and some are just pathologically fickle. The priests and the Pharisees and the other religious rulers are full-blown hypocrites. They give lip service to the law of God and the faith of their fathers, but what they really crave is the praise and admiration of men. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they can be seen by others. But they don't really care what God thinks of them. Hypocrites. And here you see perhaps the most glaring symbol of their hypocrisy. According to John 11.53, these very men, this, this group of the Sanhedrin, had been making plans for several months to put Jesus to death. Actually, they had sought to kill him as far back as the end of John 8. And then they had passed a final verdict against Jesus in a secret council shortly after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now they subject him to the pretense of a trial before this kangaroo court that consists of the very same men sitting in judgment against him who had long before already covenanted together to kill him. And so they're desperate for Pilate to execute their sentence against him in order to give their phony proceedings some appearance of legitimacy. These guys are hypocrites to the core. And the crowd, the common people, are pathologically fickle. They are easily suggestible. They are hate-filled, resentful, self-indulgent, and now suddenly bloodthirsty. These are the same people who had shouted loud hosannas just a few days before, and now their collective cry becomes, let him be cried. This is perhaps the most egregious example of fickleness, the fickleness of unbelief in all of human history. And yet, they are doing this in the name of religion. They are calling for Jesus' death because they accuse him of being a blasphemer, they are acting as if they are doing God a favor. This is pure, unmitigated evil. And in fact, if you think about it, this is a far worse evil than all the more notorious crimes that had made Barabbas infamous. Nice. In pointing out the hypocrisy here, he's pointing the finger at all of us. Who of us can say that we're not guilty of the same things? And he points out that they were worse than Barabbas. Good twist. Nicely done. So you'll notice he's pointing out the sin in the text and in, and preaching it in such a way that you're sitting there going, ooh, man, that sounds eerily like me. Right. It's supposed to. These people are more evil than Barabbas. And this is a reminder of something I've said many times in the past. There is no greater expression of human wickedness than religion. 
false religion, fickle religious fervor, rank hypocrisy, masquerading as religious orthodoxy. You know, we tend to think of religion as the highest of all human pursuits, but it's not. Unless it's genuine faith in God, religion is actually the most sinister expression of evil depravity. (laughs) Brilliant. Nice point. In the worst cases, such as we see here in our text, the religious sinner will reveal a heart that is every bit as dark, bloodthirsty, savage as the tortured soul of a rank outlaw like Barabbas. Now, these people are religious, but they represent the religion of a fallen world. It's not true religion at all. The proof that they are worldly to the core and the hallmark of all worldliness is their absolute, irrational, incorrigible hatred of Jesus. 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's John 15, verses 18 and 19. And it- Notice, I'm going to point this out just because I want to, I kind of want to keep pointing out the right things here. He's using Scripture to in- interpret Scripture so that we can better understand what's going on in this text. That's exactly how you do it. The historical grammatical method, you got to get the history right so that you can understand the historical context in which the narrative is taking place or the doctrine is being taught. you got to pay attention to the grammar. He's done that throughout this entire sermon. We're even going in and giving us little Greek lessons along the way so that we can understand, okay, in the original language it says this. He even points out some of the variant readings so that because you know, those help us understand some things as well too. And now he's even pointing out other passages of Scripture that correctly come to bear on the text. He's not ripping stuff out of context in doing that. This is a topic that is the same topic, and so you bring those other texts in where they touch on the same issue so that you can get a fuller picture of what it is that God has revealed here, and it's being done brilliantly the religious people of this world who hate authentic Christianity the most. In John 16, verse 2, Jesus said, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. In other words, a purely religious motive lies at at the heart of all that murderous hatred, just like here. It's not pagans who are fomenting violence against Christ. It's the high priest and his cohorts who are acting in the name of Yahweh. Yeah, that's true. Wow. What the very worst kind of religion looks like. But there's a third category of human evil that figures heavily into this account. We've seen the notorious sinner represented by Barabbas. We've seen the religious sinner represented by the mob. Now look at the respectable sinner represented by Pontius Pilate. He is the respectable sinner. Pilate, of course, had at his disposal all the advantages of political power and civil authority and Roman military might. He was worthy of respect, if not for his character, for his position. Now, Pilate was not a religious man in any way that shows, in fact, the heedless way he had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem reflected a reckless contempt for the God of Scripture, and yet 
Pilate had many of the qualities that command worldly respect. He was a shrewd, practical, powerful man. He was a strong, natural leader who spoke with authority and wasted no words. He had risen to the highest ranks in the Roman government, which meant that his loyalty and his basic reputation for integrity must have been beyond question. In the worldly sense, he was a a noble man. He would not have been in that position if he were wantonly dishonorable. And you can actually see flashes of noble character in his dealings with Jesus. He clearly did not want to participate in the travesty of this deliberate miscarriage of justice that the Sanhedrin had conspired to perpetrate against Jesus. He accurately read their evil motives. Look at verse 18. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He saw clearly that it was not guilt but goodness in Jesus that the priests and religious leaders hated so much. Pilate's original intention was just to give Jesus a few cursory lashes and let him go. Luke 23, verses 15 and 16, Pilate says, look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. And Pilate actually declares Jesus' innocence repeatedly. Luke 23, 14, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. John 18, 38, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then again, John 19, 6, one last time, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He is practically begging this mob to disperse and let Jesus go. In Matthew 27, verse 23, when this mob is shouting, let him be crucified, Pilate responds, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second. Again, just pay attention to the fact that we are wrapped up in this story. I mean, you can't go right, you can't go left, you just got to stay in the groove here of the story. Every little detail that, that Phil is bringing in is adding more light, more understanding, helping us better grasp the whole picture of what's going on here. I mean, this is this is better than a movie depiction. This is the type of stuff where he's adding just the right details so that we can really kind of grasp the full tension, the full story of what's going on. And, you know, he sees in the different characters all the major brands of human evil, you know, preaching with the assumption of total depravity. And uh, so I'm going to point something out also. Time-wise, we're 45 minutes, almost 46 minutes into the sermon. And um, we've had little pieces of the gospel along the way. And like I said, Phil didn't sit down and sit there again. I want to make sure I got 50% law and 50% gospel. It's not his goal. His goal is to rightly handle the text and rightly distinguish law and gospel and let the measurements work itself out. You're going to hear the gospel very clearly here as we get towards the end of the sermon. But the idea here is, is that he's not He's not going to let all us sinners off the hook too quickly. He's going to let us stew in this as we really ponder the magnitude of the evil that's going on at Jesus' trial and how our sin is represented 
and complicit in the in the execution of Jesus. And so he's going to let us marinate in that thought for a little bit before he's going to bring the gospel to bear, which I think is a wise thing to do. Because as C.F.W. Walther, the great Lutheran pastor, pointed out, that to preach the gospel to, well, a comfortable sinner is not a correct distinction of law and gospel. You are to preach the gospel to a sinner who is terrified by God's wrath and brought to despair of his own self-righteousness. So Phil, by spending enough time here in the law to really make us all go, man, that's me. He's doing the right thing. Breaking us down, breaking down our sin, describing it, calling it out, naming it. And so we all find ourselves there in the text and our sin there in the text. So that when the gospel is preached, it's a cold drink of water in the desert that refreshes our soul and provides us comfort. We continue. Pilate's proposal that the multitudes choose between Jesus and Barabbas was really a brilliant ruse. He had every reason to think they would choose Jesus for amnesty and Barabbas for crucifixion. Common sense would suggest that. And if the people simply did what common sense would seem to dictate, Pilate would have actually gained an amazing victory over the Jewish rulers. He could have released Jesus, pointing out that he, Pilate, was simply fulfilling the will of the people. And that would have removed this moral dilemma from burdening his conscience, while it would have also had the double benefit of utterly humiliating Pilate's most obnoxious political rivals, the Sanhedrin. It was a pretty clever ploy on his part, but as Matthew relates the narrative, here's what happened. Verse 17, when Pilate first asks, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? It seems it was at that precise moment, the way Matthew tells the thing, at that precise moment, his wife sends him a message and the messenger shows up. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Here's another reason Pilate was a respectable man. He had a perceptive and considerate wife. That very morning, she had apparently been awakened by some kind of vivid dream about Jesus, and that dream gave her a deep concern about her husband's welfare. Notice that she acknowledges that Jesus is a righteous man. She doesn't seem hostile to Jesus, which she says have nothing to do with him. It's not because she despises Jesus. I gather that what she says she suffered because of her dream was a kind of mental distress or pangs of conscience because in her dream it had been revealed to her that Jesus was a truly just man suffering unjustly, and so she tries valiantly to get that message to her husband. But notice this, while Pilate is receiving his wife's message. The Sanhedrin and their comrades seize this opportunity, this brief interruption, to pass through this mob and to spread the word that they were to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus, verse 20. And so the crowd, like like any lynch mob, 
were so easy to persuade by the mere power of suggestion that as the Sanhedrin's order was passed in waves of whispers through this crowd, they turned against Jesus even more. And so, looking away from this messenger who had brought Mrs. Pilate's warning, verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate is now caught in his own trap. Having offered to bow to the will of the people, he cannot escape this gross injustice that they are demanding him to authorize. To deny them the crucifixion they craved would have caused great and possibly fatal political damage to his own career. What Pilate fails to consider is that by consenting to hand Jesus over, he is incurring eternal judgment against his own soul. And if he simply had the ears to listen, this is what his wife's warning signified. That dream was a providential token of God's grace, and notice Pilate totally ignores it. When push came to shove, Pilate showed that under that respectable veneer, he was an evil man. He was in bondage to sin just as surely as Barabbas, as surely as the Sanhedrin, as surely as that bloodthirsty mob were all in bondage to evil. When his own ambition was on the line, his honor was for sale. Wow. Great point. And you only dig that kind of stuff out by really spending time over the text, studying and reading and paying attention to all of the details in the narrative. Great point. Nobody gets off scot-free in this uh, in this preaching of this text. All are brought low and all are exposed to be in bondage to sin. Wow. <laughs> oh boy, I hope we get the gospel quick because it, it, this got us all on the line here. And he bartered it away without a second thought all out of political expediency. He's, he's concerned that, you know, Jesus is being unjustly condemned, but Pilate is more concerned for himself. He's so caught up in worldly power and worldly wisdom that he missed the significance of this drama that is playing out before his very eyes. I mean, think of this. Here is the incarnation of all truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life, standing right before Pilate, in abject humility, with his hands bound behind his back, and his back already bloody, and Pilate has the temerity to ask this sneering question, what is truth? How could he be so blind to truth incarnate? One thing is certain. None of the rulers of this age understood the truth, Paul says, because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2.8. Perfect cross-reference. Nice. And Pilate was the first guy and the main one who sold out. He sold out because of sheer political expediency. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Now, that symbolic washing did nothing to cleanse Pilate of guilt. He was not innocent of Jesus' blood. Turning Jesus over to this mob was an act of cruelty 
cowardice, compromise, and criminal malfeasance. This supposedly great, respectable man of honor sold his own principles when it counted the most because he valued the favor of men more than he valued his own integrity. He was as guilty as those who thoughtlessly cursed themselves and their children, verse 25, and all the people said, his blood be on us and our children. Now, back, go back to the beginning of the program where I pointed out the fact that you point me to a church where God's word is being rightly handled, where it's going to be preached in context, and I'll show you a church where the Holy Spirit is working. I absolutely believe what that's what's going on here. Because what's interesting about the approach that Phil Johnson is taking here, other pastors might have taken the opportunity to pull out from the text, look at the congregation, and say, which of you has done this? Right? And he could have easily done that, and he resisted doing it. Now, I'm not saying that if a pastor did that, it's wrong. But what's interesting is is that Phil here, in his unflinching preaching of the text, understands and has the maturity to understand that God the Holy Spirit is at work at this very moment as he's preaching against this sin of Pilate's, that God the Holy Spirit is at work literally saying to the people who are hearing this, You've done this same thing. You have betrayed Christ in much the same way by selling out Jesus and him to your career ambitions, your political ambitions, and other things like that, right? And Phil here is trusting the Holy Spirit to do the convicting work as he calls out Pilate's sin. Wow. And yet, you know, I, I'm listening to this going, whoa, man, there have been times I've done this. And I know as you're listening to this, you're going, oh, I've done the same thing too. Right? So all of us in the preaching of this text are found to be sinners in league with the Pharisees, in league with Barabbas in league with Pilate. None of us can say, if it were me, I would have let Jesus go. The way he's preaching this, we're all complicit, each and every one of us. Well done, Phil. Verse 26, then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He had the power to stop the entire charade, but he caves into the mob mentality and hands Jesus over, even though he knew Jesus to be innocent and he had repeatedly declared him to be so. And so we see these three categories of sinners, all of whom still exist today. There are the respectable sinners who don't necessarily hate Jesus or overtly refuse him but they are complicit in his crucifixion by their apathy, by their indifference, by their indecision, or by their inaction. Like Pilate, they don't see any fault in him. Notice what he said. He's talking about present-day sinners complicit in the death of Jesus. Right. 
but neither do they bow to him as Lord. Then there are the religious sinners, lots of them, some of whom are openly hostile to the Christ of Scripture, some of whom are hypocrites, and some who are just pathologically fickle. All of them eventually oppose him in one way or another. In the words of Hebrews 6, verse 6, they crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. The religious sinners. Then there are the notorious sinners, those whose sin has no veneer and no mask to cover it up. They might seem, from a human perspective, like they're the most hopeless of all sinners, but in reality, they are the ones to whom the gospel promises the most. Because Christ came not to call the righteous or the respectable, but notorious sinners to repentance. Here comes the gospel. He died in the place and in the stead of sinners just like Barabbas and like me and like you, if you are someone who confesses your sin rather than covering it up. Notice the implicit call here is for you to take the veneer off. Stand with Barabbas as the notorious sinner you are. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the gospel. And it's perfectly illustrated in the release of Barabbas that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture so that in the words of Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Barabbas epitomizes and illustrates the central point of gospel truth. In the words of J.C. Ryle, let me read to you what Ryle wrote about this. He says, Barabbas is a lively illustration of the great Christian doctrine of substitution. Barabbas, the real criminal, is acquitted and let go free. Jesus, innocent and guiltless, is condemned and sentenced to death. So it is in the salvation of our souls. We are all by nature like Barabbas. We deserve God's wrath and condemnation, and yet he was accounted righteous and set free. The Lord Jesus is perfectly innocent, yet he is accounted a sinner, punished as a sinner, and put to death so that we might live. Christ suffers, although he is guiltless, so that we might be pardoned. We are pardoned, even though we're guilty, because of what Christ does for us. We're sinners and yet counted righteous. Christ is righteous and yet counted a sinner. Happy is the man who understands that doctrine, Ryle says, and has laid hold on it by faith for the salvation of his own soul. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are sinners with no more righteousness of our own than Barabbas had. We've incurred guilt of our own that is as dark as his. We are as deserving of condemnation, even worse than his. We thank you that in your love you sent your Son to bear the price of sin on behalf of all who trust him. Seal our trust in him. Give us grace to honor him in the way we live as redeemed people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Notice, no sappy music. Notice the gospel then made sense. 
Notice how we were all sinners whom Christ died for. Why did the gospel make sense in that sermon? Because he rightly preached the text and rightly divided law and gospel, excellently employed the historical grammatical method, gave us the history, the background, every little detail, adding more light and more understanding to the text. And he unpacks it, and he makes the point. The gospel was clear. The gospel was not convoluted. It made perfect sense. And he didn't have to spend 15 minutes unpacking the gospel. In fact, if you were to weigh it out, there was more law in that sermon than gospel. And yet, law and gospel was rightly handled. Rightly divided. Eh, Great. Well done. Refreshing to the soul. And a great thought as I meditate on and think about how amazing this good news really is. That truly there was substitution going on. The notorious sinner Barabbas is set free and Christ is punished for his sins. If Barabbas can be set free, then so can you. So can me. Isn't that the point? of penal substitution, the Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God, as the scripture says. Something to ponder, something to consider, something to take joy in, knowing and being comforted by the fact that despite the fact that you are a notorious sinner, not because of it, but because of God's love, because of his name, his holiness, his honor. He sent his son to die for you. You and I, we, in the real sense of the word, truly are all Barabbases, notorious sinners. And Christ takes our place for us on the cross. And like Barabbas, we find ourselves bewildered at the thought that we have been set free. This is the gospel. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by our crucified and risen Savior who took your place on the cross. Amen. Amen.